Well, as I mentioned, today we are actually beginning a new chapter. Um, no chapter divisions are not inspired, but nonetheless we have them. And so today we come to chapter 2. But in order to understand anything of chapter 2, we have to go back and revisit something in chapter 1, and that would be verse 27. If you remember, we noted that the next, well, you could say the next section in the book of Philippians would be chapter 1, verse 27 to 2, verse 18, and that deals with living in the light of the gospel, living in the light of the gospel. And if you remember, chapter 1, verse 27, the Apostle Paul laid down this principle to us. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. So, you are to live gospel-worthy lives. Lives that are lived in the light of the gospel. So, we said that the gospel has implications for life. And we are to live gospel-shaped lives. Gospel-formed lives. And we want gospel-shaped families, gospel-shaped churches gospel-shaped hearts. And so the Apostle Paul wants Philippi to be a gospel-shaped church. And so we saw that there were three marks he laid down for a gospel-shaped church that he wanted to see at Philippi. And they were that they would stand fast in one spirit, that they would be striving together for the faith of the gospel with one mind, and that they would not be terrified by their adversaries, so that they would be fearless and bold in their proclamation of the gospel in the face of persecution and even the, the opposition that they had of, of the legalists and the antinomians, which we noted, which we see further description of in Philippians chapter 3. And then he took an aside and he comforted the church at Philippi because they were suffering persecution, literal, physical, scary persecution. And so he took an aside in verses 28 through 30 um, well, 28b through 30, and he comforted them in the midst of their persecution. Now, in chapter 2, in the beginning of this chapter, Paul returns to a theme he has been expounding. Yes, it's the theme that you're to live in the light of the gospel, but particularly, it's the theme of unity. Unity. Unity has already been touched on by Paul in verse 27. One spirit. What's he talking about? Unity. One mind. What was he talking about? Unity. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. We already noted, Paul was talking about unity. But in chapter 2, he comes back and he deals with unity again. But his, his emphasis is so strong that it's striking. He doesn't just touch on unity. He spends most of the chapter dealing with not only unity, but then applying not only unity in the sense of an exhortation, but then applying the very gospel of Jesus Christ in His humiliation and His death and His resurrection and exaltation to the church at Philippi saying, this is your gospel, this is your Savior, a humble, self-denying Savior. How can you be divided? How can you be fighting? How can you be so selfish and proud? And he takes so much time to deal with this subject 
of unity. But this isn't the only place in Paul's epistles that he deals with unity. Unity is a very, very common note. In Romans chapter 12, verse 16, and I'll just give you one verse here. He deals with it many other times in the book of Romans. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. The Romans had issues with unity. They struggled with issues of having division. And if you read, especially chapter 14, you find that there are issues with regards to Christian liberty. There's division. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. There's division at Corinth. Some were saying, I'm a Peter. Some were saying, I'm a Paul. And some were saying, I'm just of Jesus. And there's division. Ephesians 4 and verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Tremendous text. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 13. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. I mean, I could give you many, many more texts. Paul is over and over and over again in his epistles sounding this note of be unified, be unified, be of one mind, be at peace, be together, be one, constantly. And it's amazing that in Philippians chapter 2, he actually says that this is his joy. If you look at chapter 2 verse 2, Paul says, fulfill ye my joy. We noted how this epistle is the epistle of joy. But here Paul is saying, my joy, yes, his joy preeminently, ultimately, unshakably is in Christ. But his joy is in the unity of the churches. And he's saying, my joy, Philippi, is that you'd be one, that you'd be unified. Why did Paul put such a primacy on unity? That he would talk about it so much that he would emphasize it so so significantly, even in Philippians chapter 2. You see, for Paul, unity was not just something that, yeah, was necessary in the churches. It was of prime importance. You know, something that is very interesting about Christian growth is that when you start off as a believer, there are certain virtues, there are certain doctrines which seem really, really, really important And then there are others which, in that state of immaturity, you know that, yes, they're of course important, but they just don't take the same level of importance as some. For example, when you're newly saved, you might think everything about having zeal. You just, I've got to have zeal. Really important to have zeal. And maybe you're, you're very, very stirred up about things like, You know, you just got saved, winning your family to Christ and winning everybody to Christ. But you might not think much of unity in the church. You know, that's important, but it's it's not as important as being zealous for Christ and things of that nature. And they're all equally important in one sense. But as we grow in maturity, certain things like humility become really important. Unity. Patience. 
You might have known somebody that was really zealous, but they struggle with pride. Maybe even a preacher who preaches really zealously, you know, really passionately, but he just wasn't very patient. Um, I guarantee you if that preacher is a, a mature believer, he'll feel very acutely his struggle with pride. And to him, humility is so precious. He would rather have humility than zeal. And for the Apostle Paul, unity was of prime importance. And we've got to maybe change our thinking a little bit and understand how important unity is. Now, as we enter into this section, we're going to be looking at unity specifically a number of, from a number of different vantage points and applying it, expounding it over the next couple of weeks as we look at Philippians chapter 2. But before we even embark in this section, I want us to understand the importance of unity. The importance of unity. I think before we get into this, we need to grasp the importance of unity. And so we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study. We'll be looking at a number of different passages to really open up what Paul means when he says, this is my joy. Fulfill ye my joy. Unity is my joy. In the first place, I want you to understand that division is dangerous. Division is dangerous. Division destroys churches. Division destroys homes. Division destroys friendships. Division destroys churches. And division is an epidemic. Churches all over are divided. Churches split all the time. It happens. I mean, I I can guarantee you, if you go up and down probably this road, you would ask somebody, how did this church form? Well, we split from that church. And so we formed this church. Some people in this church didn't like what we did at this church, so they split, and they went and started this church down the road. That's typical in how churches are started. There are splits and divisions all over America in churches, and even we as the Free Presbyterian Church struggle with division. I don't know the history of this congregation, but I do know that at some point it will happen. There will be somebody who's not happy, somebody who is not feeling the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's going to happen. And particularly, the more people, the more possibility for division. It happens all the time. But division is dangerous. I've been through a number of churches where there were significant divisions. I was in one church many years ago, not a free church, where there was a division that was very hurtful to many. There was a situation where an assistant pastor was not ethical and embezzled money. Split the church. He went down the road and started his own church. The pastor left the church and he went and took a church in another state. It was it was destructive to the people of that church, to the congregation. It just, division is terrible and dangerous. 
Um, it's, it's a terrible thing. And I just want to give you a couple of reasons from Scripture that division is so dangerous. In the first place, division causes confusion. In James chapter 3 and verse 16, if you wouldn't mind turning there, we find this. Where, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Where you have envy, people that are not happy because somebody else has been promoted, and you have strife, people not getting along with one another, there is confusion. The tr- word translated confusion here means, it's talking about disorder. There's just n- nonsense. It, just, it doesn't make sense. There's disorder in the church. You know what happens when there's division? Typically, there's a family or a person that has a lot of influence and has power in the congregation. And all of a sudden, that group or that person takes the place of the elder. The elders are the shepherd, are the shepherds of the local church. The elders have been given by God that position. And the elders meet for certain things. They will meet and they will make decisions to the best of their ability. Not perfect by any means. But they are to be respected. Hebrews 13 verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls. As they that must give account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. It's very clear. We are to obey the God-ordained authority in the church. Now, that obedience is not the same obedience as, say, a king would, would be given. It's not a servitude. But this is, a, this is like understanding the family headship, where the wife is in a different function, a different um, Position in the husband. She's not beneath him by no means. And by the way, if the husband and the wife are a representative of the Trinity, they are in their original creation. How the Trinity, God is a plurality, but all equal. The husband and the wife, the order in the family, is not saying that the wife is less than the husband or less human than the husband for some way. Because much of the created intent of having a man and a woman in this relationship is in many ways pictorial of the Trinity itself. So by no means is the husband greater than the wife or the wife less than the husband. And the elders are not greater than the people in the church. The people in the church are not less than them. But they have been given by God a position and a function in the local body. And I have seen it where you'll have a, a church meeting or you'll have situations where people in the church after service, I have sat in a pew and had this happen after a service, talk badly about the teaching elder, the man who's preaching. Openly disagree, not, not going to them and disagreeing with what they've, what they've done or decision they made, but openly behind their back, disagreeing with the elders, ruining the respect in the church. And I want you to know it's confusion. You know what that does for children and families? 
Oh my goodness, you know what kind of confusion it is? Well, we're going to church and we're going to go hear this man stand up and preach. And then when we go home, we're going to tell our kids how he's good for nothing. You know what that does to your children? You know how it ruins the respect of the man who stands to preach? No man is a perfect man. And no church member is perfect either. And we all ought to love one another and bear with one another's faults. But I have seen it too many times where a child grows up in the church and they will not even listen to the preacher anymore because mom and dad have said so many bad things about him. Please think before you speak a bad word about any elder, any deacon, or the preacher to your children. It has serious effects. It has really serious effects. It's confusing. It's confusing for the church. It's a terrible feeling when people come in and they feel like one family has power, one family has the influence, and the preacher is standing up and he's, he's trembling. He doesn't know how, how hard he should push in the sermon because he can upset this family that has influence and he's trying to hold everything up and he knows at any moment the whole church could just fall apart. It's terrible. And it's not God's will. Second, division is never alone. Division is never alone. In James 3.16 we read, For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and, and every evil work. When, when division comes into the church, I can guarantee you, you will find other things too. You're going to find bitterness. You're going to find pride. You're going to find a thousand different Sins that come along with division. Division grows out of sin and division produces sin. In a church, when you find division, you are going to find doors open to all kinds of sin. Because just, for example, in the scenario I described, when the preacher is not respected, when the elders are not respected, then the people don't respect the oversight that is over them. They have a difficult time receiving the word of God. And all sorts of problems happen. There's every evil work when division comes in to the church. And Paul knew that, and that's why he consistently sounded the note, please be one. Third, division grieves the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul gives, in the beginning of the chapter, a glorious description of, of Christian, liber- uh, Christian unity, excuse me, and he gives some, some wonderful um, motivations to it. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above you all and through, through all and in you all. And the rest of this chapter, he exhorts the Ephesians to a variety of different um, virtues and Christian duties. And in verse 30, he says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, that grieving the Holy Spirit of God, yes, is in the immediate context of don't let any corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that grieve not the Holy Spirit could be said of everything Paul is talking about here. When you don't have unity, you grieve the Holy Spirit. When you, you steal, as he speaks about, there's, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. When you're angry, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. 
um, when you're sinfully angry, when you are corruptly communicating, you're, you're saying things that are ungodly, you're grieving the Holy Ghost. This is a very, very serious thing, a very important thing. In one sense, when you grieve the Holy Spirit, you are, you're, you're causing your, your God to react with grief. And if we love our Savior, and we love our God, and we love the Holy Spirit, who for nothing in us came to us, opened our eyes to see our sin, didn't leave us in our sin, opened our eyes to see our sin, gave us new hearts, gave us new desires, came to live inside of us, comforts us, lives with us everywhere we go, and we would grieve that Holy Spirit by division in the church. It's very serious. In the book of Acts, when the church was in one accord, and if you look through Acts, the church is always in one accord. Four, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 33, the scripture says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Keep that in your mind. One heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. If you underline things in your Bible and draw lines in it, you can underline one heart, one soul, and great power and great grace and connect them. One heart, one soul, great power, great grace. Throughout the Word of God, power is associated with the Spirit of God. And specifically, power poured out in a unified people of God. Psalm 133, Oh, how great and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in what? Unity. And then he says, it's like the ointment that flows from Aaron's head down to his beard, down to the garments. Well, that is a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out on Pentecost, anointing the head of Jesus, flowing down to the body. And it's a unified church that will see great power and great grace. But when the church sees division, they will quench the Spirit. Is a serious thing. There are some churches. Now, there are many, many, many different reasons why God may not work in saving power, and I'm not saying division is the only reason. And you don't want to say, well, if things don't seem to be going well, it must be because there's division. This is one reason. But there are churches that will see just nobody saved for years and years, and they wonder why. It's because one half of the church hates the other half of the church. And, and the deacon or the, or the... Well, in our case, we have elders, thankfully. But I know of a Baptist preacher who left a Baptist church, and when he came home, the deacons had all met and kicked him out. Put him out of a job. And you wonder why people aren't built up in, and they're not growing in Christ and you wonder why there's not a soul, there aren't souls being saved. You know why? There, 
the presence of God is not felt in that place. Why? Because they're grieving the Holy Ghost. It's a grief to God. Division grieves God. It's not something to be played around with. It grieves God. For division ends in separation. In Genesis chapter 13, Abram and Lot get in a disagreement um, because they both, they both tried to live in the same land and, and the land just wasn't big enough for Abram and Lot and they got into a disagreement. And verses 7 through or 8 and 9 read, And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, I will go to the right. If thou depart to the right hand, I will go to the left. And note specifically the words, separate thyself. One of the saddest things about division, strife, is that it leads to people who once prayed together, who once worshipped together, who once spent time together, separating. That is very sad. It's very sad indeed. There are people that I can think of, I'm sure you can, that were once sitting maybe in the pew next to you and now gone because of some kind of division. And that's what it leads to. It leads, ultimately, you separate. And they're at another church and their life goes another direction and you're at another one and your life goes another direction. It's a sad thing. And I, I will touch on, in a moment, what is a, a legitimate reason for separating. A legitimate reason for dividing. Um, so keep that in mind. But fifth and finally, division ruins the church's testimony. In Philippians two fourteen through 15 Paul exhorts the people to do all things without murmurings and disputings. He's exhorting them to unity. That ye may be, what? Blameless and harmless as sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. He says, be unified so that you can be a testimony for Jesus Christ in the midst of a crooked world. You know, it makes Christianity stink when churches are full of fighting. It really makes it stink. It's a shame. It destroys the testimony of a church. You can say we preach the Bible all day long. You can say we're Calvinists, we're Reformed, we have reverent worship. You can do that all day long. And those are good things and praise God for them. But if people in the church are fighting and bickering with one another, it makes it all stink. And it will make somebody never want to be in a church like that. Ever. Somebody comes and visits and you're around the supper table or dinner table on a Sunday and they hear you talking badly about other people in the church, talking badly about elders in a, in a denomination, even talking badly about the presbytery or whatever. We all have to guard ourselves there. I think we're all, we all have to watch ourselves there. I am not exempt from, from that at all. We have to be very careful how we use our mouths um, to edify. 
And it can destroy the testimony of a church and destroy the work of God. I, I heard a story of a pastor and his family who, who had a number of kids and the deacons would come over to his house and they would actually yell at the pastor when things went wrong. And the kids heard the deacons yelling at the pastor. And if I remember correctly, none of them are in church today. I can guarantee you, you sit there, even though their, their, their father was a godly man, and you hear the deacons yelling at the pastor, that makes it all stink, doesn't it? It doesn't beautify the church of Jesus Christ. Um, I remember hearing one, one conversation, one teenager saying, I don't like my church because everybody fights in my church. That's a sad testimony, isn't it? And we don't want that to be the case. And Paul didn't want that to be the case at Philippi. Now, as I said, I just want to note briefly, is there a legitimate reason for there being any kind of division? Yes. If your church denies a core doctrine of the faith, you can get upset. And you can divide. Absolutely. If the church is not exercising discipline, if people are sinning outright and openly and there's no discipline going on, yes, you can raise issue about that. And it's a legitimate form of, of saying, we've got a problem here, we've got to do something about this. Even then it needs to be done in humility and in grace. If the church makes a major theological change, I can understand that. Say it turns from being reformed to, to not. Um, I can understand people saying, I don't think I can stay here um, or a certain family fighting even that change and saying, I don't want that to change, and there being a serious and real division. So yes, if they deny a core doctrine of the faith, fail to exercise church discipline, or make a theological, massive theological change, I can understand that. But typically, that is not why churches divide. Um, I actually found a list of... There's 25 things that people sent in to a Southern Baptist leader about why churches divided and split in recent times or had disagreement. One of them, they split over whether you should use the term potluck or pot blessing. Because luck is not, is not Christian. Another was they disagreed because they had deviled eggs. This is no joke. This is legitimate. This, is act, this actually happened. They split over the kind of green beans to use at a church function. There's a big argument about whether they should buy a, should we buy a weed eater or should we not? And they had have multiple business meetings to try to weed out the situation, try to figure it all out. That's shameful. That is absolutely shameful. But typically division comes from three sources that I can think of. Relational, practical, and doctrinal. I just want you to understand these things as we move on. Relational. Many times division in a church comes from people not getting along with one another. Maybe somebody has said something to somebody, maybe it was years ago, but it really hurt. And they haven't been able to forgive. They haven't been able to let it go. 
And so they harbor in their hearts bitterness towards this person. And at some point, that bitterness gets out and division happens. Maybe they, they, maybe they just misunderstood something the preacher said or an elder said, or they don't like the way that the elder acts, or they just don't like the kind of person he is, or the deacon, or whoever it might be. Relational issues cause division. I know um, a certain girl that used to go to Sunday school, and the Sunday school teacher said something, uh, didn't mean anything by it, and she took it the wrong way, and she never came back. And... Her parents, you know, were, were right along with her, never go back, instead of approaching him and working it out. Now, if there's issues, relational issues, we'll look at in further weeks how to deal with these things. There needs to be humility. There needs to be love. There needs to be working through it. But this is a great cause of division in the church. You'd be amazed. I don't like him and I don't care. We're Christians. We're Christians. Our God sees nothing likable in us, and yet He loves us. This is probably a situation in Philippi, by the way. Practical division. This is division that stems from Christians disagreeing on matters of Christian liberty. Now, I told you that in Romans 14, this was going on. It also went on in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. People were mad at people because they were eating meat offered to idols. And you can imagine this. They, they go into the, say they went into the, the store, and here's, here's Stronger Brother. Stronger Brother says, I'd like, a big, I'd like a big steak that happens to be offered off, up to an idol. And Weaker Brother comes in, and he sees around the corner that Stronger Brother is ordering a steak, and Weaker Brother says, Ah, oh, that worldly, carnal Stronger Brother. How can he order a steak that has been offered up to idols. How can he be so worldly? How can he be so absolutely carnal? And the stronger brother, oh, that weaker brother is here again. I'm so sick of him. Why is he such a legalist? Why is he always getting on my case? I wish he would just get out of the church. I wish he'd just be gone. I'm sick and tired of him. And so there's division. There are matters of Christian liberty. We might, not, we might not like or we might not feel that um, perhaps for ourselves certain things would be appropriate. We are different people. Maybe a certain way we might dress. Maybe somebody might have a TV and somebody might not. Um, maybe somebody feel like someone should eat a certain way as opposed to another. Maybe somebody feels like they shouldn't um, you know, listen to a certain thing or another. I'm not going to get into all the details of all of that. As we grow in Christ, we recognize what things are liberty and what things are not. There are some things that are not liberty. But there are some things that are up to Christian liberty. At this time of the year, Christmas becomes an issue. Christmas is a matter of Christian liberty. There are people, there are people in churches who will look down, despise people who celebrate Christmas in any way, shape, or form, who recognize the Incarnation at this time of year because they don't understand that it is a Christian's liberty. It's not commanded. It's a Christian's liberty. This is a huge cause of division. I'm sure some of you have been in churches where you shouldn't wear, women shouldn't wear pants or should only wear, wear dresses or things like that. And, and people will split over them. 
People divide over them. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, very sad thing. And then third, doctrinal division. There are fringe issues that are not essential, not huge, important theological issues that people will not only divide about, they will divide about it, and they will call everybody who doesn't agree with them as compromisers, as worldly. It's, it's, it's a very ugly thing. A very ugly thing. We need to understand that there is room for people to disagree about certain things theologically. It does not mean they're compromisers. It does not mean that they're in sin. There is room to disagree on certain things. There are some things that, that you would not be okay with disagreeing over. Not all things are a matter of heaven and hell, or heresy, but there are some things that are just so important that you and I should say, I could not be in a church where that goes on. I don't think people that believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit continued are not saved. But I cannot be in a church where that goes on because that is such a serious issue. And you have to use discernment. But there are some things, for example, I'll just give you one, psalms singing. I was in Pennsylvania, and we visited Pequa, I think it was, Presbyterian Church, where Whitfield preached outside of. That church split because the church adopted Isaac Watts' hymn book. And they started a church down the road that was psalms only. And as the people walked to church, they put their hands over their ears and they wouldn't listen, even listen to the hymns that were being sung from the church because it was so grievous and worldly and carnal to them. Now we look at that and we go, how can they do that? Psalms versus hymns? We shouldn't have that kind of reaction. But we have to search our own hearts. Is there anything in my heart where I'm looking at believers in a wrong way and not recognizing there are some doctrines that are of prime importance and some that are not. But many times that happens in a, in a church and it's extremely uh, dangerous. You will have somebody say, I don't like this particular person's view of the end time. And they start influencing other families. And the other families start, you know, get very stirred up. And they, they go, this view is the only view. And if you don't have our view, then, then you're in sin. You're teaching error and all of these things. And they'll stir everybody else up. And there'll be a massive, terrible division. Please understand, there are certain things like the end times that are difficult. There is an understanding that there's room to disagree. Now, that was a longer... Um, brief note than I intended. But then, second, not only is division dangerous, but second, our gospel is a gospel of unity. We need to understand this. Our gospel is a gospel of unity. And this is the last point we'll be making on this matter of the importance of unity. The scriptures are full of exhortations, Old and New Testaments, as I said, to unity. But one of the most striking um, portions that deal with unity are the portions that talk about the New Covenant in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 39, the prophet, speaking of the New Covenant, says, And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. One heart. So the promise of the New Covenant is a promise of unity. And the New Covenant is it's speaking of the gospel. 
And remember Paul in this section, he's talking about living in the light of the gospel. Our gospel is a gospel of unity. The gospel gives men one heart. One heart. One God. One faith. One baptism. One calling. One heart in the new covenant. So many ones. The gospel is full of ones. It's full of unity. It's a gospel of unity. And Jesus prays in John 17 with a view to his finished work resulting in unity. He says in verse 21 of chapter 17, that they all may be one. That they all may be one. This is what he's praying in the light of his finished work. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So note that the Lord Jesus is saying that they should be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. The gospel starts with God. Remember, the gospel is Christ clothed in the gospel. The gospel starts with God. The Son was sent forth, sent forth by the Father. The gospel starts with God. And Jesus says, I want them to be one as you, Father, and me are one. So the gospel comes to make people one. Men with men one, no longer at enmity. And men with God one, no longer at enmity. Why? So that they might be one as the Trinity is one. Because God, when He created, He was creating so that men would be able to take part in the glorious love and delight, not as members of the Trinity, but as experiencing something of that love and delight that is in the Trinity itself. To be at one. One with God and one with man. The Father, loving His Son, delighting in His Son, pouring out of Himself, Creating. He's the fountain. He just begets life. And He creates people in order to pour out Himself to them. That they might know His love. That they might know something of the joy and delight that is in the Godhead. And so Jesus comes forth from the Father for the work of redemption. To reconcile man to God and man to man. So that ultimately, men with men in glory and men with God in glory would be in one glorious, delightful, joyous, eternal state. That is God's design in redemption. That's why Jesus is saying, with an eye to His finished work, that they might be one. Yes, that they might be one on earth, but fully, perfectly, finally, and completely one in the eternal state. The gospel is a gospel of unity. The result of the gospel is unity. The design of the gospel is unity. And the God who sends forth the Son, the Trinity, is a unified God. And so just finally, when we fail to be united, we are not living gospel worthy. We are not gospel shaped We are not God-like. You want to know what we are like? 
We are devil-like. We're devil-like. The devil divides. The devil separates. You see, the devil, this is the difference between the devil and God. The devil is empty. He's always trying to be filled. And the devil needs, he needs the worship of people. He needs the obedience of people. He needs, he's empty. God is filled. He's full. He's overflowing. And he wants to overflow with his love and his delight and his glory in human beings knowing something of unity between God and man and with God so they might know the delight and joy that is God himself. And when there's unity and there's humility, people are showing that they're filled. They're able to love the unlovable because they're filled. I don't need, I have, because I have God. The devil divides, God unites. Unless, of course, it's a legitimate division. So may the Lord help us to understand the importance of unity among God's people as we go on to look at this chapter in the following weeks. Let's seek the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we pray, Lord, over this congregation even. Father, we need to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, we pray for the elders, for Dr. Pollock and for Brother Walters. We pray for Brother Gary, Deacon. Father, we pray that thou wouldst give us all a respect and a love for them. We pray that they would, we would honor them. Father, we pray that we would love one another. Lord, that we would recognize what is not, not legitimate to divide over. Give us gracious hearts, patient hearts, hearts that are godlike. Protect this congregation from division, we pray. Protect it, Lord. And give it grace. And bless thy people for Jesus' sake. Amen.